Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in Central Europe with the capital city of Brussels, a population of 11 million and functioning as a parliamentary democracy is Belgium. On the 6th of December 2011, a Belgian government was sworn into office. Nothing would usually have been very extraordinary about this event, except that it came 589 days after the election for it. Belgian politicians had taken almost two years to agree on a coalition and in doing so had set a new world record for a period without a government. Belgium's distinct regions and multi-party system makes such wrangling common, though rarely this extreme. But how does a country that plays host to two international organisations, the EU and NATO, end up in this situation? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Belgium, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Martin Conway, European historian at Oxford University. Martin, thanks for joining me today. No problem. Well, I was hoping we could just start with a brief overview of the early history of Belgium. How does this country actually come to be? Yeah, well, I think Belgium was a series of regions before it became a country, and it's become a series of regions after it was a country. What do you mean? Most historians now would think that Belgium was a thing that came into being, sort of gradually congealed, if that's not too ugly a word, over the period of Napoleonic rule and then Dutch rule between 1815 and 1830. And by the time 1830 happened, a rather sort of accidental revolution, there was a sort of Belgium waiting to be born out of the regions. Right. So what are these regions? The most obvious division in Belgium, which is reflected in its current constitutional structure, is that you have Flanders in the north, Dutch-speaking, but predominantly Catholic, and you have Francophone Belgium, Wallonia, and the city of Brussels, capital city of Brussels, in the towards the south, uh, which is a Francophone area, and which, you know, between the two, it's uh, rather unequal, because you've certainly got a majority of people and a majority of wealth in Flanders, but you have a significant population in Francophone Belgium, and no, nothing's going to happen in Belgium unless those two regions can actually reach some sort of modus vivendi. Interesting. So you have this split in the country itself, which was actually codified into the constitution in 1994. It's interesting to have a relatively small country split into these different regions. You know, there are regions, and then there are micro-regions, and then there are municipalities, and part of the fun, I think, of Belgium is the fact that everything is operating at different levels. And perhaps the rather unusual period of Belgian history was between the sort of later 19th century and the mid 20th century, when these various regions all joined into a common Belgian identity, which was certainly not universal, but was dominant in that period. I mean, it's not surprising that it happened over that period, is it? The country literally has to fortify itself against German invasion in both the First and Second World War. Yes, absolutely. It's pretty much unique that this is the country that gets occupied twice by Germany in the 20th century, very emphatically both times. Yeah, right. And so how does the country fare under occupation? Everybody in Belgium was found themselves locked into this German occupation, apart from a small area in the far west of the country that remained uh, in the hands of the Belgian army. Everywhere else, uh, was under German control, and that was a period of intense material suffering. So what was the effect of this? The effect? Well, on the one hand, it was about very much an intensification 
of Belgian national identity. If you didn't know you were Belgian before 1914, you did know by 1918 because that had been the common experience. And the monarchy, King Albert at the time, is very much the winner, shall we say, of the war in the sense that he comes out as the kind of uncontested leader of the country and a very popular figure in his own right at that time. So there's an intensification of Belgianness. Yeah, I can imagine. So World War I really forces the country to come together and most notably around the monarchy. But then the country is occupied again from 1940 to 1944. A depressing repeat of history, a depressing second defeat for the Belgian armies. Absolutely. But the country isn't as unified this time. And there are lots of social divisions and inequalities that come to light over the course of the war. How does the country emerge? When Belgium in some sense staggers out of German occupation in 1944, there is a very prolonged period of political crisis, especially about the king, the new king now, Albert's son, Leopold III, who had very much uh, taken, uh, had, had adapted to the German reality and was therefore seen by many Belgians as an unacceptable monarch after the Second World War. Interesting. So the exit from the Second World War is almost the opposite of that of the First. But then how is it that this country is still able to relatively thrive after the war? I mean, it establishes a pretty well-off European nation. Yeah, never underestimate the Belgians. You know, in many ways, you know, the, the sort of multilingual, rather fluid, sort of competent bureaucrat whom Belgium specialises in, you know, is well made for the Europe that emerges from the Second World War, be it NATO or the EU or any of those institutions. There's often a Belgian ending up running them. You know, because perhaps because they aren't French or German or British, but also because they have talents in their own right. And I think that that sort of pragmatic confidence, which is very much part of the self-image of Belgium, you know, was very important in the period of reconstruction after the Second World War. So they did manage to reconstruct the new entities of Western Europe. What they probably didn't manage to do was to reconstruct their own country. Mm. So in a way, the country is so focused on outside forces that it doesn't really look inwards and overlooks a lot of problems around inequality and regional tensions that will eventually come to a head later in the century. And it even causes a crisis that leads to a whole new constitution, right? It does, indeed. I don't know how long you've got, but you know, the, the standard Belgian joke would be the idea that really you need a whole evening to explain the different levels of the Belgian constitution, and most Belgians can't do it themselves. Essentially, what they've done is that they have plastered a whole series of revisions of the constitution over the original 1831 constitution. And in so doing, they've created a situation where it's often very difficult to decide who should decide things. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's everyone's responsibility and also no one's. <laughs> so how does it all work together? So the, you've really got a multiplicity of different structures in Belgium. And it's sometimes said that Belgium has seven governments at any one time. And that would be based around the idea that there's a federal central government, now called the federal government, essentially the national government of Belgium, with a prime minister and a cabinet and a national parliament. But then you have the region of Flanders, uh, which has uh, essentially two heads, because it's both the region, the geographical region of Flanders, and the community of the Dutch-speaking Belgians. So it has these two entities merged into one. And those two entities are not merged on the Francophone side. 
So you have a Walloon government, the government of Wallonia in the south of the country, which is probably alongside Flanders, the other really quite influential government in Flanders, in Belgium, dominated on the whole by the Socialist Party. Um, and But then you also have a regional government of Brussels and you have a overarching uh, Francophone administration, Francophone community, as it's called, of Belgium, which uh, unites Brussels and Wallonia. And if you think that isn't enough, you can add to that also the fact that after the First World War and again after the Second World War, Belgium acquired a series of German-speaking territories in the Far East, um, essentially in Wallonia, Eupen, Malmedy and Saint-Vite, uh, where they have their own autonomy as a German-speaking community. Wow, now that is confusing. And you also have the EU as well. Plus, to top off all these different layers, there's also the monarchy. What role does that play? The monarchy is a very remains a really quite quietly contested institution in Belgium. There was this huge crisis that's referred to normally as the question royale, the royal question, in the 1950s when the Belgian parliament and government uh, managed to enforce the abdication of Leopold III, who'd been the the king during the Second World War. And his son, eventually, Baudouin, became king. But there's a long period of kind of division and rancour after that about the extent to which the monarchy could really be a centre of Belgian identity. Baudouin didn't have any children. He was uh, succeeded after his very sudden death from a heart attack by his son, by his brother Albert, and then Albert abdicated in favour of the the present king, his eldest son Philippe. Right. So it's purely ceremonial, like in the UK, and attempts to be more of a unifying national figure. Given all of this divergence amongst the regions, though, are there any festivals, events, or celebrations that are uniquely Belgian? No, I think I think not. I mean, the answer, which may seem a little evasive, is one to say that Belgium is a country of many sort of festivals and and events like that. The division would come from the fact that uh, Belgium is historically very much a Catholic country, but it's also what is called a pillarized country. There are people who identify with being Catholic, and then there are people who identify with being liberal or socialist in a way that is, you know, at some level, really quite anti-Catholic. So, the idea that somehow Catholicism could provide a common cultural frame for Belgium has long since passed. And um, therefore, religious festivals are not very successful. There is the National Day on the 21st of July, which was a subject of considerable dispute this year about whether the king should go to the cathedral on the National Day, whether the National Day should continue to have in the rather sort of... um, imitative of France way and military parade and exactly what that should do and even whether there should be Belgian flags flying on Belgian National Day which is a an interesting thing to fall out about so um no Belgium does not have those common festivals and most Belgians would say a good thing too because what they want to emphasize is about the localism of Belgium municipal festivals and so on municipal pride and about the way in which actually the plurality of Belgium is a way of actually celebrating a certain sort of Belgianness. Interesting. So it's much more about local festivals and events in Belgium. Well, I think that really sums up the country that we've been talking about today. Thanks so much, Martin, for joining me. Nice to talk to you. Cheers.
Well, I also think that's a perfect place to end the show. Join us next time where we'll be looking into the Central American country of Belize that has a very complicated history with its neighbor, Guatemala, and has even had to go all the way to the UN because of it. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Belgium or any other country. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.